The text for this morning's sermon is found in Jeremiah chapter 1, the verses 1 to 10. And I invite you to read along with me in your Bibles, or if you don't have one, there's one hopefully in the pew pocket in front of you. While you're looking it up, this is a powerful text. My wife turned to me this morning and said, this is my favorite text from the book of Jeremiah. It is the text that called me to missions. Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Be not afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. One of the main purposes of Span the Nineties, Part Two. And as I look out over the crowd, I realize that a good three-fourths of you probably don't have any idea what that refers to, or maybe half. So I'll tell you in three steps what I have in mind. One of the main purposes of Span the 90s, Part 2, that is, one of the main purposes of the creation of the Bethlehem Institute and Training Center on Wednesday night in 10 days, one of the main purposes of focusing on small home cell groups three Sunday nights a month instead of a Sunday evening service, and one of the main purposes of redefining staff job descriptions is to maximize the equipping and the ministry of lay people. Or another way to put it would be to mobilize the priesthood of the believers. Or another way to put it would be to mold the mindset of Bethlehem more and more into a centrifugal evangelizing, ministering, giving mindset and less in a centripetal, gathering, receiving mindset. That's the goal of SPAN 2. Now, I know that gathering and receiving and being strengthened and equipped is biblical and crucial. Hence, Sunday morning worship. Hence, Sunday School for All Ages. Hence, Wednesday Night Bethlehem Institute and Training Center. Hence, home Bible study gatherings where we're all together. Hence, 
at least monthly all-church gatherings, Sunday night and other times on Wednesday nights. It's all there. It's all crucial. It's necessary. But there are thousands of perishing sinners that God loves who won't ever come to this building. And we can multiply fun services like we had last Sunday night. And fail as a church. We can leave those services revved up, on fire, red hot, and nobody gets saved. It can't happen. I'm not satisfied with the last nine years. Are you? I mean, it's pretty full here. We're going to do three of these. But how many are getting saved? And so if anybody is perfectly satisfied with the last nine years, I can understand why you might chafe under changes. But if you sat where I sat and wrestled like I wrestled and cried like I cried, the job isn't getting done, you might say, well, let's try something. The gatherings here at Bethlehem are to worship the king and to strengthen his loyal subjects and to send them out among the subjects who haven't yet bowed the knee to their king. And our conviction is, as we've prayed and thought, is that the finding of our spiritual gifts and the engagement of the whole priesthood, all of you in ministry, will probably happen better if we learn those things in smaller groupings than if we multiply all church meetings. And we're persuaded that many of those subjects who have not yet come to believe in Jesus are more available Sunday night than any other night of the week. Not to come here, but to come to your house if you want them to. Or to a park or a restaurant. The sky is the limit. They're at home watching television Sunday night. My prayer is that we maximize equipping and ministry in the years to come and that we experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that burdens us for lost people, that gives us a passion for ministry and missions and that releases lay ministry more than we've ever seen here at Bethlehem. And to that end, I've been talking now. I want to talk for three weeks, last week, this week, next week, about the generations and the hindrances to the old, the hindrances to the young, to ministry. And then two weeks, or one week from today, how we dream dreams together. The old men shall dream dreams and the young men shall see visions. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What ought that to look like at Bethlehem? Last week we talked about the older people. And I said they ought to be prized, mobilized, and evangelized. 
I said that one of the great hindrances in our culture to that is the lie that is perpetrated by insurance companies and retirement plans and pension communities that really what 65 to 95 is all about is play, 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 play while the world perishes. And there isn't a foothold for that in the Bible. I did admit, using my father as an example, that as you get older, and the ears and the eyes and the joints and the mind all change. Ministry changes. It'll change. But it never stops for a Christian who is obedient. Ministry never stops. You never stop being a priest to God if you're a Christian. And now today, I want to focus on the younger end of the age spectrum, and I want to use Jeremiah as our example. He raises an objection, a typical hindrance that I suppose a younger person might raise if God starts to move you into ministry. And by younger person, if you say, who who do you really have in mind, kids? Yourself? And my answer is, "Mm, me and anybody younger. Although I I realize if I say that, I should have cut off a hunk of people in the middle between 43 and 65. So you just line yourself up on either side where you think you fit, you people in the middle. I suspect you'll fit here. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6. Here comes his response to God's call. Then I said, Ah, Lord God. Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Now, you see two things in that sentence. One, a sense of incompetency. I don't know how to do what you're calling me to do. I can't do it. And then a second thing is the the basis of that. He says his youth is, is the reason. For I am only a youth. Now, I realize that in taking this text, some of you might feel, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not ever going to be a prophet like Jeremiah. And that's true. I hope nobody in this room aspires to be a prophet like Jeremiah. He was inspired to write scripture, and none of us will be. But I think the principles of God's response to Jeremiah's hesitancy here are principles that apply to the most seemingly insignificant nudge of the Holy Spirit into a path of service that you might feel. Anybody in this room is a candidate, I think, for the principles of this text. If God speaks to you in some still, small voice saying, could it be this is the year to teach Sunday school? Could it be this is the year to practice more hospitality? Could it be this is the year to go down to Franklin Avenue and work at Marie Sandby? Could it be... This is the year to write that letter. I don't have the experience. I'm not mature enough, etc. God responds now with three answers to Jeremiah and I think to us. First, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, here's the way I would summarize this first reason that God gives Jeremiah for why he should not resist the call. 
Jeremiah's life is rooted in unshakable, sovereign purposes of God. Let me say that again. Jeremiah's life and the life of every believer is rooted in unshakable, sovereign purposes of God. Now, you can see four, four of those purposes in this verse that surround Jeremiah's birth. Number one, he knew him. God knew him. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, what does that mean? I think it means more than I was aware of you long before you were born. Just kind of intellectual awareness that somebody was going to be born someday like Hitler and Jeremiah. It means more than that. To know one of his children ahead of time means to choose them. We know that, for example, from Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You, Israel, only of all the peoples have I known. Doesn't God know the rest of the peoples? Of course he does, in one sense, but not in the sense that he has set his loving acquaintanceship upon them. That's the knowing, that rich biblical idea of relationship in the knowing is here. So before Jeremiah was born, God set his loving, caring, knowing eye upon him and chose him for himself. And that can be said of every believer in this room, according to Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to Jesus Christ. You were foreknown if you are a believer. Second, he consecrated him. Before you were born, I consecrated you. That is, I set you apart long before you ever came into existence. I set you apart for a holy purpose. I chose you for service. I consecrated you and reckoned you to be holy and fit for this Service and every believer who is given grace and gifts from God is consecrated to be like Jesus and to use those gifts. You are consecrated. If you're a believer, before you were born, God consecrated you to the priesthood. I'm going to say more about this priesthood at the end. You were consecrated to a priesthood before you were born, if you've believed. And in that priesthood, there is a design for ministry that God has for you to which you've already been consecrated. That's a deep root. Third, God formed Jeremiah in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. His father was named Hilkiah. He was a priest. And his mother, we don't know his name. When they came together, we could use our technological language today and say, a sperm and an egg joined. And a human life was created. This text says that was God's work. God designed the chromosomes in that sperm. God designed the chromosomal makeup of that egg. God designed which sperm would meet which egg. And God made Jeremiah. And he made him weird. He was a, a weeping prophet. At a depressed personality. I know that there's a lot that goes into the upbringing that shapes us that way too, but there's both. There's genetic and there's environmental. 
God reigns over the environment. God reigns over the genes. That's implied, I believe, in this text. God knit this prophet together. And the point is this. The you that exists minus the remnants and the effects of sin is a you that God knows well because he made it. And when he calls you to a ministry, it's a fit. He knows you. He designed you. There is a very special calling upon your life to do what nobody else can do in this world. Nobody. You believe that? Some of you wouldn't dare to believe that almost. You have a calling and a unique destiny for doing something that nobody else can do because there is no other you in God's image. And the fourth thing in this text is that God appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations, which simply specifies what his destiny was, just like he will specify for us what our destiny is. It won't be, won't be Jeremiah's, it won't be mine, it won't be the person next to you. It will be uniquely yours. And that's what we must find to be what we ought to be at Bethlehem. So my first answer, God's first answer, I believe, to why Jeremiah should not resist the call is this. His life is rooted, before he was ever born, his life is rooted in unshakable, sovereign purposes of God. He didn't choose God first, God chose him first, and that's what every one of you should confess. Jesus said it about his disciples. He didn't make himself, he's not a self-made man, he's a God-made Man, he's not self-reliant, he's God-reliant. He's not an accident out of the universe, he is a design for God. This is a great thing. I mean, you talk about roots and stability and strength and a place to put your feet in life. I mean, can't you feel the strength growing up under you when you confess those great truths? God knew me. He called me. He consecrated me. He formed me. He appointed me. I have a reason for being that nobody can take from me. God Almighty appointed me and made me a priest to God. What is it, Lord? I mean, everybody wants a place to stand like that. Answer number two that God gives to Jeremiah for why he shouldn't resist the call is in verse 7. And I could sum it up by saying God's authority is behind Jeremiah's going and speaking. God's authority. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And the reason I emphasize it like that, I send and I command, is because if you don't emphasize it like that, the, the verse just simply reads like another statement of the call. And yet the, 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 the clause begins with for. You see that? Don't say I'm only a youth for. So here comes a reason. Now, how do you get a reason out of these sentences? I get it from the word I, I. That's the reason. I'm going to send you. Don't worry about your youth. I'm going to put words in your mouth. Don't worry about your youth. So it's all right to feel humbled and feel inadequate in your youth. That's just fine. Because your adequacy comes from God. God's word is all we want to say to the world. 
God's authority is the only authority with which we come to the world. Who are we to say to somebody, you need to be converted? I'm nobody. But if God's word is God's word, then I can take it upon my lips in all lowliness as a youth and say, won't you believe God's name? Verse 9, I think, makes the same point. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So don't worry. You're a youth. I understand. But it's my words that count. And then verse 10 emphasizes the power and effectiveness of God's words. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, what does that mean? It means that when Jeremiah speaks the words of God, words of judgment, they tear down because God's words are mighty. And words of blessing, they plant and they build up because God's words are mighty. When God speaks, a thing happens. It brings a nation down or it plants a nation and brings it up. And so Jeremiah, there he is, just like a youth and say, wow. I don't feel adequate for this at all. And that's the whole point. You're not adequate and that's okay. My words will be put there and my authority is behind your going. That's the second answer. And if you say, well, my goodness, that just sounds so foreign to anything I might be called to do. It's okay. Let's try this. I think I can take that principle and apply it to you like this. To the degree that you sense that you are being led by God into some path of service. And to the degree that in that path of service, you simply want to echo the truth of this book. To the degree that those two things are true. The Spirit is leading and you just want to echo God's truth. To that degree, you can say this, namely, I am here in this ministry by God's authority and not my own. And what I am saying here is not coming from my own authority. It is an echo of God's infallible word. I'm not trying to put myself forward in any inappropriate way. It does apply to every believer. One last answer God gives now. Number three is found in verse eight. And the answer is that he will be with Jeremiah to deliver him. It says, be not afraid of them. The them apparently being troublemakers or enemies or problem people. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Isn't it true that a great obstacle to ministry, especially among younger people, especially, say, among teenagers, is the thought that if I do this, not everybody's going to like this. Not everybody's going to think this is cool, this ministry. Like I was driving down Franklin with Benjamin. We were out shopping on his birthday for a bicycle. And and there was a a team of people in the parking lot of the uh, Norwegian church over there on Franklin. And they had their faces all painted like clowns. And they were, had Bibles in their hands. They were clearly a ministry, some kind of dramatic troupe. And I looked, and there were maybe half a dozen people gathered around. They were talking to them. And I thought two thoughts at once, a flesh thought and a spirit thought. <laughs> the flesh thought said, good night. There's not many people there. 
be awkward to be there and try this ministry and nobody comes. That was the flesh, okay? The spirit thought was this, and I mentioned it at the breakfast table yesterday, I think. I said, you know, I was a team of young people who had the courage to go to Franklin Avenue, paint their faces, dramatize the gospel, and talk to unbelievers. And there are 10,000 little mustard seed-sized courage groups like that in this world. And that's the way the kingdom is going to come. It's coming. That's the way the victory will be won. The mustard seed hid away. The seed sown in the field growing, not knowing how. And I said, and I've thought this recently, that if all the amazing works of God in this world were gathered into one city, it would be like a, a Vesuvius. Is that the name of the volcano? It would be like a volcano. It would be like a volcano of divine miracle. But God has chosen to spread out his kingdom people thin all over the world. He can see it, and those who have eyes to see can see it. The point is, young people and we older people, too, tend to say, Oh, man, I might get criticized if I do this ministry. I might get rejected. I might make a mistake and get legitimate criticism. Good night. I don't want to do that. And God comes and says, Be not afraid of them. I'll be with you to deliver you. Take, the, take that sentence and break it in half. I'll be with you, first half, to deliver you. Isn't he saying two things? Isn't my presence with you on Franklin Avenue and my endearing fellowship and approval vastly more important with any crowd of applause or accolades that men could give you? Isn't it? He asked you that honestly this morning. Isn't my presence, my fellowship, my approval more important than 10,000 applause? And, of course, a believer would have to say to God, it is, it is. And then the second half of that sentence is, I will be with you to deliver you. Isn't the point there? Sure, there's going to be egg on your face. Sure, there's going to be criticism. Sure, you're going to get persecuted. Sure, some of you they will kill. But I will make you more than conquerors in life and death. I will deliver you out of and in every trouble that comes your way. Fear not. I'm with you all the way through the grave into glory. I will deliver you no matter what. And there the last enemy comes tumbling down. So let me sum it up. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. I can't do it. And God says, number one, Jeremiah, your very life is rooted in unshakable sovereign purposes that I have for you. Stand firm. You're on a rock. And the second answer is, my authority and my word are your sending and your preaching. Or in your case, perhaps, your taking that meal to the neighbor that lost a loved one and your speaking a word of love into that situation. Or third, God himself will be with you to deliver you from all your trials. Now, let me close like this. There is a text in Peter, 1 Peter, that I believe if you are a Bible-believing Christian this morning, will immediately show you that what I've just said has direct relevance to your life here and now. And the text goes like this. You, talking now to believers, you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, let's just underline that word priesthood and think about it for a couple more minutes. You're a priesthood. You don't have to get down on your knees this morning and say, Oh God, am I called to ministry? Oh God, is there any call upon my life? What is it? You don't have to do that. The call is in the conversion. You are a priest to God. Men and women, old and young, if you have embraced Jesus Christ, your high priest, you have been born into a holy priesthood. You have a ministry. Now, the Reformation rediscovered the priesthood of the believer and the pietistic wing of the Reformation, of which we are a part, really rediscovered it. And Jacob, Philip, Philip Jacob, Philip Jacob Spenner, he was one of the great pietists who wrote so well on this. Listen to what he said about your priesthood. Every Christian is bound not only to offer himself and what he has, his prayer, thanksgiving, good works, alms, etc., to God, but also industriously to study the word of the Lord with the grace that God has given him to teach others, especially those under his own roof, to chastise, exhort, convert, edify, to observe their life, pray for all, and insofar as possible to be concerned about the salvation of all. There is no question... That that is your call. You don't need to pray about that. Forget it. You don't pray about it. You read it right out of the Bible. You are a priest to God. The only question left is, this fall, Father, what's the path of my priesthood? Is it to be a small group leader? We've got about 50 small groups in place now. And we'd love to see another 20. Talk to Tom about being a leader in a small group. Could it be that God has the path of your priesthood in nurturing children on Wednesday night, the faith of the most precious thing, the next generation, or Sunday morning? Could it be that the priesthood this fall will be one-on-one discipling of a new believer or one-on-one with a teenager, working with Brad? Could it be, for example, that you would sense God's priestly leading into a lay evangelistic Bible study? Or that you would sense call to visit shut-ins, organize an inner-city soccer team, anybody? Work in the pro-life efforts, caring, loving Hospitality, writing, mobilizing prayer, literature distribution, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless. Let's bow for prayer. And what we need to do in this last prayerful moment is all of you who are giving yourselves up to God and saying, yes, I understand that the Bible teaches that when I committed myself to Jesus, I was given a priesthood. I was made a priest. There's not this giant difference between the clergy and the lay people in terms of the priestly ministry. There is a calling upon some to have a public ministry, but there is the calling upon all to be priests to one another and to God. And the question that we're trying to push in span two is, 
What's the path of your priesthood this year? It'll be different for everybody. Lord, show us, I pray. It is not your will that we be confused. And I'm sure that the vast majority of the people here right now are laying themselves wide open to you and seeking your face and yearning to hear that still small voice that says, here's the path, walk in it for my glory for the next several months in this priestly service. We give ourselves to you, Lord. We want very much to be consecrated in ourselves just like you have set us apart before we were born. It may be that a good way to humble ourselves before the Lord and lay ourselves open to Him and adore Him for His goodness to us would be to sing a few of those verses. Father, Jesus, Spirit, I adore you.